So we're talking about the psychology of givers, takers, and matchers. Which one are you? Yes. Which one are you? So we have some people in life who are users. Yeah, shock horror. But they do exist, and quite a few of them. These are the same people who you lend something to, but they seem to forget to return it. Or the same people, you seem to always be there for them, but when you need them, they're just not around. So what's the psychology behind this? Are these people aware of their selfish acts or is it in their DNA? Are they conscious of their acts that they do or are they just careless? And I'm just going to pause on that. What's your thoughts, Dr. Roshanak, when it comes to users? Well, we are all givers and takers. However, some people really get into the habit of taking. And while we should all give and take, unencumbered, you know, you don't want to do everything just transactionally because that ultimately leads to disappointment and so on and so forth. But this idea of people being users, I think really hurts the user themselves the most because while it seems to have and does have benefits on its face, at the end of the day, when you're constantly just taking, there's an underlying fear that you don't have enough. You just don't have enough. And when we get really greedy, not that greedy is a bad word, but when we get really greedy, it's because we are fearful. I won't have enough in the future. I will be left without. I will be starved. I will be jobless. I will be homeless. I will be fill in the blank, you know, partnerless. I will be whatever. I mean, take as much as I can get. Why not? Now, there is this concept that the world is an abundant place, and it is, but intention is everything because it also guides our behavior and the energetic exchange that we have with each other. You look at someone and you kind of get that feeling, look, we've all got into a room and been like, ooh, something bad just went down. I feel the tension in this room. Or like, oh, there's a great energy in here. Let's stay here. And that also you feel when you're with someone, maybe not the first time, maybe not the second time, but after a while, you really become aware there's a resentment building up. And so the taker can take for so long, but it's going to destroy their relationships in the long term with other people, but also with themselves and the way that they feel about themselves and their sense of security. And that is incredibly erosive. Johnny? It's a really good point. The Phoenix with users, they display a lot more in the world of business and in the world of work. Because there's that Darwinian type of economics. There's that Darwinian sense of competition, of survival, the fittest. And, and users have that mentality, well, I'm just going to take whatever I want and I don't care. And I'm just going to get through people, use them to, to my advantage because they don't matter. You know, sometimes they can be quite narcissistical where they just, they don't even think twice about it. And the thing about users, if they do rise to the top and they do at times, that, that's the reality, they do at times, when they fall back down, people don't root for a user. A user only has a certain level of, in terms of capacity when it comes to where they're at. So for example, if a user does achieve, if they achieve, it's not an ever long lasting achievement or going on to achieve and achieve, achieve, because they don't have the support mechanism. They don't have the people there that are really rooting for them. Whereas with a giver, if a giver succeeds, we root for a giver. 
right? We root for that giver who's given value and, and offered so much and they rise to the top. It's just human nature for us that we think, yeah, we're rooting for that person. Go get it. Whereas a take, whereas a user, if they fall down, we think good. A lot of people think good. They deserve it. There's something called karma and karma can be a bitch. And it plays out in quite different ways when it comes to business though, because you have to be mindful of the different personality types of givers, they, takers and, and matches. Why do you think, Dr. Roshanak, when it comes to, you know, there's, there's that kind of analogy of we need a combination of hard work, talent and luck to succeed, right? And then there's the other fourth ingredient, how we connect to each other, how we interact. Are users just real masterful manipulators that people don't realize they've been used until it's too late when the, the penny drops? What's your thoughts? So, you know, there are people who are extremely talented at the art of manipulation. Now, manipulation is a dirty word when we just use it like this because it implies, it connotes that somebody is doing something to their benefit and to your harm and with intention or to your detriment and with intention. Whereas generally speaking, we all are manipulative. We manipulate the weather with, you know, our clothes and our homes and our whatever. And, you know, it's not, it's not this idea of, you know, being able to sort of be aware and position yourself well. It's this, I know what I'm doing and I'm being deceitful in, you know, with intention and knowing that this is probably going to be very detrimental to that other person whose trust I am engendering intentionally. And if you become really good at that, at least in the short term, you know, there was the, the Tinder swindler, right? You know, there are people who do this all the time, but again, it only works for so long because at some point, you know, it catches up with you. People are like, oh, and now the world is even smaller than it's ever been. Oh, this person did this to me. Oh, this person's like this. And you see, one of the ways you can protect yourself is to see if they have long-term healthy relationships of people who really are rooting for them. Not people who recently met them, not people who are dependent on them, but people who've known them for a while and have actually no other reason but to say, you know, I think this person's great and that's why I would like to, you know, see them succeed. And if you hear rumblings and grumblings and you kind of have your spidey senses tingling, then that, those are the ways that you might be able to protect yourself from the ruthless and suave manipulator. Johnny? Fascinating points. I did watch the swimmer and it was quite unbelievable, really. The lengths he went to to cultivate that narrative, I do recommend watching it. It's a true story. Do you think social media shows in life? that you need to be a taker. And I'll, and I'll, I'll ask why. I'll, I'll, I'll ask why. I'll, I'll specify in more detail. And that is, for example, you do a post or a share and it's about the likes or the followers or do I get people into a funnel taking rather than just giving or false giving with the underbelly of taking. So we just created a kind of society where to thrive, you must be a taker. Otherwise, you just get eaten up. What's your thoughts? I think that that's a very dangerous narrative that becomes self-fulfilling, like a self-fulfilling prophecy. So if everyone thinks that everyone else is out to get, then they're like, well, I'm not going to be the schmuck that's being left behind. 
And so we start to create a world that nobody wants to live in. And I think you're right. It does absolutely bear upon that. We have a very narcissistic response to each other and on and and because of social media. But here's the problem. You know, social media and media and these prevailing narratives create this sort of standardized, sort of homogenized way of thinking, of being. So we fall prey to being in the middle. That's where it's safe. And then I won't have any surprises. And I won't have any disappointment because I know exactly what to expect. And so I'm just going to live like that. And then we wonder why we're bored. Then we wonder why life has sort of become empty. And then we wonder why, you know, we don't like anybody and our relationships are awful. So we end up really, if we're not conscious, if we're not aware, if we're not paying attention, if we're not really seeing what's happening, and that's why this conversation is so important, is we will get caught up in that and the mainstream. It's human nature to sort of, we know, want to be with the crowd. And then we end up contributing, being active contributors to our own demise. So you're absolutely right. And these are some of the ways in which there it's manifested and maybe a little bit of why and how we might be able to prevent it and why it's so important to do so. Yeah, no, I do agree. And you have to just be true to yourself because in the end, it's yourself who you look at in the mirror. And if you try to think, well, if you can't beat them, join them, it won't work because in the end, you want to be, to use a clubhouse word, authentic to yourself because it will seem like contrived It'll, people will see it unless you're a masterful manipulator and there are quite a few of them i want to go on and talk about adam grant the famous psychologist and he writes this about takers they have a distinct signature they like to get more than they give they tilt the reciprocity in their own favor putting their own interest ahead of other people's needs he states that to prove their competence, they'll self-promote and make sure they get plenty of credit, credit for their efforts. Grant goes on to argue there's also what he describes the garden variety of takers who aren't cruel, who aren't cutthroat, they're just cautious and self-protective. If I don't look out for myself first, takers think no one else will. What's your thoughts on why Adam Grant says that? Well, I'm going to turn it around for a second because I know that you definitely have a take on this one yourself and ask you what you think. But, but this is, there's a lot of truth ringing here and it's really unfortunate. But I want to come and ask you, Johnny, what do you think about this? I think he's bloody right. In yeah. my view. And I think a lot of takers will do exactly that. They'll try to get what's best for them and look at their own self-interest which we all do to a certain extent folks okay we all do look out for ourselves to a certain extent it's just that someone who's a taker is intentionally going out there through others to satisfy their wants and their needs by tilting the relationships reciprocity to their favor because they see it as a game of chess they don't look at kind of the pureness of their values or just doing it from a place of good and what they feel and all that kind of stuff. Takers are very much chess players. They look at the game first and, and, and life is a game. Life is a game. And we have to know the rules 
to play better than anyone else. And takers are especially of that philosophy. So when they're in business or in the world of work or in, you know, if it's in the world of corporate America or any kind of sense of office politics or whatever it is, they'll make sure that their narrative, that their presence is, is there, that they, that they do it in a way where they make sure they get the credit for stuff. And I've seen it time and time again for a piece of work or whatever, it might have collaborated with other people. They'll make sure they somehow contrive the narrative or tilted it to their advantage because they're of the mindset and you see it in the world of business a lot. You know, it's about me first, my interests first. And if I don't, then someone else will get a better thing or a better value off me. And it's that dog eat dog mentality. It's changing slightly now because a lot of people now are looking for companies in terms of being an employee for a purpose-based company or a mission-based company or people who have that kind of sense of values that are aligned. And in terms of leaders, we're looking for leaders more that inspire us that inspire us rather than those leaders of the past that rule with that iron fist with a sense of fear and that kind of demigod status of take, take, take. And certain industries, Dr. Oshanak, was particularly rife for having a, for cultivating that culture of take. You know, greed is good. We used to have a, a comedian called Harry Enfield here in the UK and he used to do a sketch about loads of money, loads of money. I got loads of money. And the financial services industry, the Wolf of Wall Street, you watch that film, for example, it was all about stuff the client, stuff the customer, it doesn't matter. It's about getting ca cash is king, getting money, getting the deals, you know, making as much money, more money, more money, more money. And there was a lot of that environment, so much so that the sub subprime uh, mortgage crisis of 2009 and the great recession that we had, the financial recession, that was cultivated through a lot of premise of taking. Greed, taking, that self-interest first. And we had the famous bank called the Royal Bank of Scotland, where Fred the Shred, he used to be known, it was the world's biggest bank before they nearly ran out of cash one day until Alistair Darling and Gordon Brown, the UK Prime Minister, back in 2008, 2009 salvaged the bank and he basically used to fire people on the spot and he created this culture of it was take 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 so that people competed against each other and that because if it was that uh, survival of the fittest competition thing it, it, it basically enabled that culture to thrive of taking it and it's, you see a lot of it in certain sectors i mean what's your thoughts well i loved everything you said and my question my well i'll give you a quick take but I agree with you. And my question is, how do we turn that around? Like, I know because you work so deeply and for so long in recruitment and careers, you must see so much of this taking, of this competition, of this grab whatever I get and let me get the best deal possible. And in some ways, actually in every way, it wouldn't happen if it weren't prize. If it weren't condoned and prized, and if people couldn't get away with it, it wouldn't be happening on this rampant level. And even where we go, okay, well, you got to negotiate for this and you got to negotiate for that. But even negotiation is now being looked upon a little bit differently. You know, instead of it's like, you know, someone's got to win and someone's got to lose and I'm going to be the winner. Or, you know, it's like just sort of this jockeying for the alpha male position, as it were. 
And, and there is a little bit of a change now, but I think it's quite slow. And I think, as you said, in certain areas, it's non-existent. And in some ways, you know, with the, you know, political environment, things are going into a throwback. Do you think that we're in danger of going, you know, sort of regressing whatever progress we've made so far in preventing the approval of that kind of behavior? I think we, we can, because what it is with a lot of companies, there's one thing, no company is going to go out there worth its salt and say, we promote using and taking. That's our philosophy. Not going to work. <laughs> it's bad PR in a environment, in a market where it's <laughs> that all? It's just bad. Yeah. PR. It's reward for talent. It doesn't enable to you a company to acquire talent or retain talent. It completely will undermine the whole company and what they're trying to do. It's a bit, a bit like Gerald Ratner. We had this famous business person here in the UK. He was a jeweler in the 80s, 90s. Really rich guy, very successful. And one day he turned around and said that people often ask me, Gerald, why are my products so cheap? And he was trying to make a joke, but he ruined him. He responded, because they're crap. And the thing is with a lot of multinationals, they can say one thing, but then they say another when it comes to KPIs, metrics around sales or results. Because let's face it, let's, let's get away from the fluffy space and put fluffiness to one side. Businesses and companies are there to make profit and to serve their shareholders. So each one of them want to do the right things around diversity, inclusion, well-being, mental health, even have a chief happiness officer. We invest in our people and they do do it. They do a lot of it and it's come a long way. But when times are tough, when things get difficult, which we might be getting into, then old habits and nature comes back again. And some of those kind of take-take mentality or, or culture, toxic culture, can come up because it's easy when you're winning and to say all the fluffy and nice things. The real essence of anyone is when we or a company is going through challenging times, difficult times, look a bit like the pandemic, how they looked after their staff. Some of them saw it as an opportunity to take. You know, I think it's really about, first of all, you're right. What's the bottom line and what is my fiduciary responsibility to my shareholders? In the U.S., it is legally your responsibility to put profits over people. You have to always be looking at the bottom line. Having said that, I think it's all about this. doesn't matter what you say if you bring a chief happiness officer and you're all about diversity or whatever else. When it comes to performance, you're, you're going to evaluate someone's performance. People are going to be evaluated. There are two things going on there. One is mental, emotional, and the other is financial, right? How am I going to do professionally? How do I feel personally? A positive evaluation is going to be beneficial on both the personal and professional level and a negative or neutral, you know, not so, not so much. I don't feel so good about it. I feel bleak. I feel depressed, blah, blah, blah. My future here. What's it going to do? What's going to happen? What's going to be, you know, I worked so hard or this job isn't worth it or, or, or at the end of the day, if all that matters is that performance review, of course, you're going to have fierce competition. 
Of course, there are going to be people who are going to be looking out for number one, because here's the thing. They'll bring you in and they'll say, we want you to be creative. We want you to be innovative. We want, you know, all this new, fresh blood and thinking this and that. And the minute you step outside the lines they've set up, there you go. And the people get rewarded are the ones who are coloring within the lines. And they're going to get the positive reviews. You're playing ball the way they want you to play ball, not the way they say they want you to play ball. And you see what gets rewarded. You figure that out and you go, okay, well, I'm going to do what everybody else is doing. And that cultural change is the only way we're going to be able to change this fierce competition that leads to us to be ruthless and leads us to be, you know, to put aside what is a natural state of being for us, which is love and empathy. And I know those don't sound like words that belong in the workplace, but it's been shown that when you look at productivity, people actually are more productive when they're happier. They're more productive when they're working together in a collaborative way. They're more productive when they're seen. And this is the only way you can even get people to think about bringing in happiness officers or thinking about mental health or diversity. It's only because they have to. And so on the outside, I look good, but on the inside, nothing has changed. Really good points. And I want to welcome Jacqueline, Dr. Jordan, the wonderful Dimple as well. And for anyone in the audience, feel free to raise your hand to contribute. It's going to be a free-playing conversation. Every opinion is important. To do us a favor, just share the room, which is the arrow sign in the square. That would be most helpful. So it helps with the algorithm. Also, joining the debate in terms of the chat room. Some people don't like to speak. So joining the debate and, and write your comments and your questions as well. That's also important. I just want to come back on that, Dr. Roshan. I, I did a piece on this and I've got a client and I won't mention who they are for obvious reasons. And the client, it professes one thing in terms of culture, environment, all the fluffy stuff, which looks fantastic, right? Really the kind of thing that people want to come to. You know, they're a tech company, it makes a lot of grooviness, whatever it is, right? The culture is one where a lot of people are bitching and throwing the other person under the bus. It's all about me, 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 because there's a, there's a culture of fear, right? And a culture of fear causes behaviors like using and taking. Because it is that pitting against one against the other. Some companies intentionally like to have these kind of things going on because they feel like by having competing forces, it creates a sense of more competition, right? Because in the end, folks, people don't leave companies. People leave people. People leave people, right? And people make a company. And the culture is set at the top. That's where leadership comes in. So if you have a culture that's collaborative, that's transparent, where people can understand how they can get from A to B to C, how they can climb that career ladder, how, to be, how they're going to be successful, how they're rewarded, and it's seen as being fair, it's seen as being one where if you do the right things, and you get the right kind of results, you get rewarded. It's inspiring. That is a culture where people thrive, where people become productive, where people collaborate, where there's that sense of 
we're together in this. But if it's completely the opposite, where it's more kind of smoke and mirrors, where people don't understand how someone was just suddenly parachuted in and they're the head of the department, where someone suddenly got promoted, causes off it politics, it causes that kind of resentment, and then feeds the beast, feeds the beast of using and taking. So I'm just going to mention this point before I open up to everyone on the stage. Adam Grant, he, he continues with this topic and he contrasts takers with givers. So in the workplace, givers are a relatively rare breed. They tilt the reciprocity in the other direction, preferring to give more than they get. Whereas, like we mentioned, takers tend to be more self-focused, or they are self-focused, evaluating what other people can offer them. Givers are other-focused, paying more attention to what other people need from them. So he goes on to state that if you're a taker, you help others strategically. Like I said about that game of chess, when the benefits to you outweigh the personal costs. So if you're a giver, you might use a different cost-benefit analysis. You help whenever the benefits to others exceed the personal costs. Anyone's thoughts on all of that? I think that sometimes it depends on the perception of the person being victimized or used. For example, if you're a people pleaser in the workplace, you may not even have a very accurate assessment of who is using you and who is taking from you. Certainly, you may appreciate who's giving, but we're also kind of making this calculation based on our own kind of conditioning, if you will. And so I don't know that I agree with everything, Johnny, that you just said, but I, I think it's also interesting how some people in the workplace receive this information differently, or they look through a different lens. And they need to, of course, work on themselves, but then they can participate in a way that they themselves can be as giving as they need to be without, you know, compromising themselves. So that's what I wanted to say. Thanks. Jacqueline, go ahead. Well, you listen, I love, you know, you two know I love this conversation when we're, we're talking about giving takers and users. I think we really need to look into culture. I'm glad that you're really referring this in a work business way, but I think we have to look at this as actually the culture of humanity at this point and how we can create a shift in that culture. Because this isn't just happening at the workplace, this is happening in leadership, this is happening on a global scale, this is happening with each other, just in relationships that we have, whether that's a family relationship or it's with your friendship relationships. And these dynamics happen everywhere. And so when we look at the givers of the world, I want to talk about the ROI of giving. And we're referring this to the business perspective, but we can also look at this on the individual scale and we can look at this on the global scale as well. And so what's the return on everyone's investment when you are a giver? And this is the part that I really want everybody to understand is that giving has the most benefit to actually the giver. 
And not everybody fully understands us, but what science and research now tells us is that the giver actually gets the greatest reward in, in, in the boundlessness of good mental health, better physical health, better well-being, positive out- life outlook, a fulfilled life, a life of meaning and purpose. These are all of the benefits, indirect benefits to the giver. Now, do we go out and give because of these benefits? This is the giver that is giving with no expectation of anything in return, that it becomes your true nature and you understand that this is actually a common thread that runs through every human every single human being on our planet it's how do we actually bring that out in ourselves so that we're actually then reaping the benefit of giving becoming a natural part of who we are that giving then becomes a culture in our families it becomes a culture with our children it becomes a culture in schools because what we know is that our brains work better we are happier. We're more productive in the workplace. They've literally been able to do the numbers on this. And the bottom line can increase up to 14% for companies that have strong CSR programs integrated into the fabric. Not just here, we're going to go out and give, the company's going to give a million dollars to a charity. This is actually integrated as the behavior within a company that giving, volunteering, people making choices around how the company is going to spend those dollars to give back to the community, both locally and, and globally, that all of that then creates not only purpose for the company and looks good for the brand, most importantly, it connects them to their employees. It connects them to a greater purpose beyond just the job that they're doing, but they now feel connected to that impact that they're making around the world. And I just want to add one more little piece to that, because honestly, I could go for about an hour just on this, on this topic alone, is that when we look at this culture of happiness, you know, Johnny, you brought up, you know, chief happiness officers, you know, they are now able to measure just that, that when you bring in that culture of well-being and happiness, which ties into giving compassion and love, when you create that culture in your workplace, your ROI, your bottom line is going to continue to go up. And when we look at this from a stock market perspective, and now the understanding that science and research gives us, it is actually to a company's benefit, which in turn, we can look at this, it's to a family's benefit, it's to an individual's benefit, you know, it's it's to the global, to the global good that it's to the benefit that we now know that when we create these cultures of happiness and giving and compassion, that companies make more money. And ultimately, that turns around to your stocks do better. So right now, it's the shift that we need to create, this whole paradigm shift, this all going back to instead leaning forward and leaning into what the new reality is and what they are now telling us actually will benefit our brands, benefit our companies, most importantly, benefit us individually which in turn benefits everyone around us and then starts to create that cultural shift at a global level. So that's a lot to be said in one mouthful, but thank you for the opportunity because really this is a culture at every level of humanity. Really good points. And I saw Dr. Hope wanting to chime in. Just before you do, I wanted to ask you a question, Jacqueline. Really good observations, and I do concur. Is the company, by offering or investing in mental health, well-being, doing our place of give, take, or using? I think it's a combination of both. 
that they're doing it as a way because now people are understanding the science as they're doing it as a way to benefit their employees because they know that when they instill this culture, they're going to get the best out of everyone. And I think that's where we need to shift that that understanding is that it doesn't have to be, you know, Johnny, you and I against each other to get the best result. It's you're going to get the best out of me and you're going to get the best out of Johnny and Dr. Roshanak. You want the best out of everyone. So when you create this culture of well-being and mental health, and it means people are at work. They're not taking sick days. People are engaged in their work. They're creative with their work because the benefits that I bring and the benefits that you bring are going to be very different. So it's not pitting us against each other, but it's actually bringing out the absolute best in every individual, which in turn will benefit the company. And that's what they're now knowing. Good points there, Jacqueline. Dr. Hope? At Harvard, when I was a student, the mindfulness revolution became my work, my work ethic. And subsequently, I'm a very extreme empath in my work, in my work settings. And in my youth, I ended up in very highly accelerated work environments. And now that I'm moving into the elder realm, how I work, the mindfulness of how I work is radically changing. And I believe since the pandemic, collectively, we're making this shift where the values of what you're all talking about are our primary focus. However, I think in a third dimensional reality, there's still a lot of emphasis on financial bottom line. and. You know, I run a nonprofit and I, sometimes I'm very prosperous and other times I'm totally in what I call, and I was calling it today, the, the path of the bodhisattva, which is an Eastern term for caring for others, benefits as a goal, as an outcome to care, to care for the other. And in my life right now, in the transition that I'm going through, And there are certain work environments that I just love working in and other work environments that I find extremely toxic. And like I thought I'd be going back to Washington, D.C. right now, and there's just no way I want to enter that toxic environment. So being able to identify clearly what's healthy and what's toxic or what's ending, what what work environments are, are no longer sustainable for me is is important and as i said i'm going through a really unusual learning curve right now i'm becoming an elder and i'm finding that the places where i got fed in my life to work like i worked i really thought i was going to have a lifetime career in the united nations there's just no way i can walk in there right now it's so much conflict and it's so broken so you know for us to be able to say these systems are broken right now is a form of mindfulness. I'm going to ask a question. Do we think the economic system that we've created in the sense of capitalism really at its heart is all about the takers? Because Margaret Thatcher once said, a famous British prime minister here in the UK, there's no such thing as society. 
And obviously that changed with other leaders coming on board that were completely opposite to her mindset. Does the economics, does the system we're in, really is all about pitting against one each other, which means that the takers, the users, is the ones that we see again and again, rather than the givers that rise to the top. What's everyone's thoughts? Maher? Yeah, that's a great question, actually. I've thought about that quite a bit. If you look at his, historically the way companies were formed, it was all about the shareholders. Even now, the companies are, the way things are structured, you got basically shareholders and employees. We're missing a big, big layer of stakeholders, like everybody involved in the production of the service or the product to deliver to the customer, right? To who's using it. And it's, it's in my experience, I built international companies. Our family started the last extension industry, the whole industry actually. And then it scaled that to a franchise system in like 20 countries in under two years. We're like in more than 50 now. The only way you could really go and grow fast and make things happen is if you share. You got to share the wealth. We, when I installed a profit sharing program into the company, I had a lot of pushback because I disclosed everything. I was like, all right, here's everything. Here's the whole finale. Once a month, we're going to meet as a whole company team, everybody from, you know, lowest paid person to the highest paid person, and you're going to see every single expense. Now, the salary is one big bucket that would get into a problem, but that was like a big deal. And what ended up happening was, you know, we gave away 15% of the profits, which is a big number, right? Everybody has a big number of employees. It made life a lot easier. They started paying attention to expenses. Everybody got more passionate into it. Everybody felt like they were more involved, but you know what was amazing? And so as far as Capitalism is concerned. I'm hoping we enter an area of what I call collaborative capitalism. So I'll stop there for now. You know what I really liked about what you said, Maher? I think you really highlighted what happens when people move into collaboration versus competition. So I've talked about this before. We have pathways in the brain that help us to assess ourselves in context of our environment, meaning self and other. Because we need that to know, to be able to gauge how we're doing. And that's going to speak to our ability to survive and so on. But we have a choice whether we want to go into collaboration or competition. And as I was saying earlier, and you just confirmed, is that when we get into a place where we are connecting with each other, then we start to engender trust. Then we start to pull away at the facade and the story and the narrative that is being disseminated, being pushed, really, and is also being accepted as, you know, reality, as true. And we can so quickly change that reality. We can so quickly shift from that into what's really going on and bring forth our humanity. And remember that that's exactly what we are. And it's what Johnny was saying before. We are people, companies. What is a company? It's like a house. What is it? You know, but it's the people that represent the company. It's the people that represent the brand. It's the people that are the expression of the ideals. We're not. And when those people aren't happy, it comes across. When those people aren't connected, it comes across. And you lose out on every level. And I'm going to go back to what I said earlier, is the amount of personal satisfaction, the meaning that you're finding in your own life through giving it all away. And it doesn't mean we don't have to make money. We can do both. And I think that you're just such a beautiful example of what's possible. 
and how good giving feels. And, you know, Dr. Roshanak and I just did an interview earlier today with a doctor by the name of Dr. Stephen Post, who wrote a book called Why Good Things Happen to Good People. And he has studied giving for most of his career. And you were just the most beautiful example. He'd be jumping up and down right now <laughs> saying, yay, this is it. This is what we want people to hear and see and most importantly, feel. And I could feel that in your story, that beautiful shift that you had created not only from your company and in being inclusive of everyone, because we talk about inclusivity all of the time now. You've brought that into your company by sharing the wealth. And as you had said, you know, you have seen the benefits to your employees and now you have the opportunity to give back at that larger scale. I mean, at the end of your days, and you know this, and we all know this, when you're taking your last breath and you are gone, they're not going to say, oh, how much money or what was the great car or the great house that you left behind? But they're going to say, look at the legacy, look at the impact, look at the lives that are still here because of the work you did. And that significance, that significance we can all create in our own lives every single day if we choose. Really good points there. Thank um, you for that, Jack. Great points. I've witnessed this myself. You know, yesterday I had, I had my grandma's funeral passed away. And to be at a bedside of someone going through the last notions of life with every bit of their being, the sheer the iron will pour up on life. It is that legacy. And it's also the memories, the memories that you have, the loved ones that you've got. And if you're lucky, if you have both and you have loved ones around you over your time when you're about to go and your memories, it won't be how much money more, how much more money did I save? Certainly won't be that. I always said I never wanted to be the richest man in the graveyard. Money helps. Don't get me wrong. In terms of when you're playing the game of life, and it is a game, it gives you freedom. And freedom gives you choices. And then you can do things. And you can do really amazing things with money and helping other people. But in the end, it doesn't give you that sense of meaning. Meaning is much more profound. A meaningful life, as I've said this with Dr. Roshanak, is three aspects. Number one is to have a meaningful career. Number two is to have meaningful relationships. And number three is to make a difference. And we all make a difference. It doesn't have to be an Elon Musk with rockets in space. It doesn't have to be Jeff Bezos conquering the world with Amazon. But I'm going to ask this question, and it's open to the stage. There's research that argues most of us are givers when it comes to our close relationships, like within our marriages, closeness of friends. When we're not preoccupied, we keep in score. And in the workplace, there's very few people that are purely givers or takers, but there might be a third style instead. That is of being matchers. And matchers are those type of peoples that look for an equilibrium where you're having a balance of giving and getting. Matchers go by the principle of fairness. Matchers operate on the principle of fairness. When they help others, they then protect themselves by seeking reciprocity. And if that's you, then you're a matcher. How does that sit with everyone else? What happens is it puts 
the pressure on those givers that are just like myself and a few other folks that are like super givers that just gave everything. And then we burn out. And that's exactly what happened. We just burned out and crashed all of us. And so, but it's still going, we're picking things. So it's an up and down thing, but that's, and I call it guarding the gate. You got to, if you're going to create a collaborative community with different folks working together from different entities or from different walks of life or whatever, whether it's an organization, whether it's an affiliation, association, guard those gates. And when you hit success, be very ready for a lot more takers to come in. Once you get that, if you get that big success, as soon as you get that, get takers are going to come flooding in and to, to ride that opportunity and, and suck you dry pretty much. So be careful with that. A really interesting share. And research does indicate though, givers are the ones who sink to the bottom of the success ladder. And the pattern appears across a wide range of occupations because givers are at disadvantage because they make others better off, but they sacrifice their own success in the process. They're too caring, too trusting. And whether we like it or not, we live in a world, you know, where there's a lot of sharks out there as well. That might be a fake giver or they're a manipulator or taker or user. So I think it doesn't mean takers don't have ambition and want to achieve. In fact, research shows they very much do. They have as much ambition as takers, but they just go about it in a different process. The problem is though, because everything is in a game, the game of life that I mentioned, about the rules of the game of life and business and work, where is that Darwinian competitive survival of the fittest going on? Even though we try to push on and move on from that, if you have naivety with it and you go to an extreme with it, it can really hurt you and you can be burnt by it. Who, who wants to comment on that? Peter? Johnny, the thing is that you pointed to givers, takers, and matchers. I'm not wrong, it's Adam Grant idea or his words, his terms. He also pointed out, as far as I remember, the givers were at the bottom. That is true. However, the givers were also at the extreme top. That should not be forgotten. I made a note in the group in the room that the givers that are successful, they're giving in certain ways. And there was another book that was written that is kind of worth reading and may not be connected to this by most people. The Art of the Gathering, I think it's called, by a woman called Priya Parker, Free From Memory. And she wrote about how do you create great gatherings of people and so forth. And if you're going to create a gathering, like she said, a party or what have you, you need to have if it's going to be a great one, you need to think about who is it fit. People should also know what the gathering is for. So there is a context, and then you need to make sure that it becomes great. Why do I bring up how to gather for a party or whatever that is supposed to be great or whatever gathering you have? Because that goes through when you're going to when you create, if, if you're going to be a giver in a great way, you create a great environment for people that where they can succeed. But that is contingent on that you have, you know 
what type of people to attract there. And you also need to know who to repel, who it's not a good fit for. And, and repelling people, that may sound like it's not a good thing. However, if you attract the wrong people, you're wasting your time, energy, and so forth, and you're wasting theirs so and resources, which is not a very good idea. So, and, and coming back to one of the things that Steve Jobs, what he did and what is very, very underestimated of what he did, he created an environment for great people were attracted to do great work, but he pointed out that what what he scared, what scared him the most was that the bozos would take over Apple, because he knew that the moment the people that don't care, the takers, and so forth, would get too big of a portion of that or be too influential in Apple, the great people would leave. They would make themselves scarce very very quickly. So to create the greatest successes, both of you want to have a great life and if you want to build an extraordinary business, that is from a context of giving. However, it needs to be set up very thoughtfully. And that is very, very hard. And the downside with that is that some People, but then again, like I was going to say that then you would be called anything under the sun and not very nice things from time to time. But then again, I also saw a quote coming by my way that if you're not ready to be hated by people, you're not ready to be famous in any way, shape or form. So, and I think that that is true. The moment you get seen by many people, some people would dislike you if it's only because you, they have had a bad day and they want to dislike someone or something. So anyway, the, so it connects with what Mara said and what he said there with the burnout. Unless you know and steer it clearly, then you get easily burnout. The other thing is that the whole lot of takers and matchers, if they are realizing that there is significant upside for them in an environment where they where you draw their best behavior out of them and they know that they will get a boot in their back and their lower back if they misbehave a whole lot of people behave a whole lot better very very quickly if there is an upside serious upside and it's a where they have a chance to be around great people and they would be kicked out if they destroy the environment because it only takes one rotten apple to spoil a barrel. Really good points there, Peter. I just wanted to ask you, can you name one example of a, uh, a successful, a truly successful giver? I think in the world of spirituality that you can find them. In the world of business. I would actually argue that Steve Jobs was one of them. Because... Yeah, the, the thing is that Steve Jobs was a pain in the ass, but if you check with the people that were working close to him, the thing is that it's, when I read the book, the Exxon's biography of him, when I read that book, I, and read the reviews, I realized that I had read a 
completely different book because a whole lot of things that people criticize Steve Jobs for were the people that criticized were people that had never been there. The thing is that if you, people want to be part of something special. People, a lot of people are dying to be part of something that, some meaning in life. Steve Jobs created an environment not to, to make money in himself. Yes, he did that too. But Larry Elliott ridiculed him for the amount of money he asked for when he got back to Apple. Because he said, you could have gotten a lot more. But Steve Jobs was like, That's, that wasn't the main point. Then he created an environment where the people that worked with him, if they didn't want to be part of something special and do make a dent in the universe, like he said, then that was the wrong place. But it wasn't hard to see. So there are people, but the things that people are looking for, if you want to look for a, a person, a place where you have lay on a sip, pina coladas on the beach and that is the main thing that the company then you will not find that so and it's like you have special forces you have where the things are very hard but people are part of doing something because nothing if you want to do something great comes easy you can't be world class in sports and hope that you can get there without training hard you can't be world-class in anything without putting in a serious effort. But the people that you don't do it, you're doing it because it's a challenge. You want to, you want to learn. You want to see what can be done. And for the people that want to really do something, then you need someone like Steve Jobs to create that, the environment where that can happen. The same thing with Elon Musk. He has created an environment too there. And the people that do that, you can have lots of opinions about them. And do they do the right things all the time? No, not certain. But, but that's my perspective on it. And the reason why I saw things differently with Steve Jobs, I had been in many of the situations that he described. So I understood why he made the decisions he did and that the decisions are sometimes decisions that most people have never had to think about and the choice no, are really hard anyway sorry i hear what you're saying peter and you make some really good points i mean steve jobs was a genius you know and definitely an incredible person in terms of what he did but same with Elon musk however i would not say steve jobs is a giver i'll give you an example but earlier on in this room i mentioned that most of us tend to be givers in our close relationships when the point scoring stops, like when you're married or with your kids or close friends. With Steve Jobs, to his ex-wife, his daughter Lisa, he gave, guess what, $385 a month in allowance for his child's support. And then he bumped it up to $500. I would not say Steve Jobs, he's brilliant and he did amazing things and left an absolute legacy, but I would not describe him as a giver. That's my opinion. But I love the debate. Anyone else want to chime in? 
Um, go ahead. You have people that are great in some areas of their lives, but complete basket cases and complete idiots and clueless in other areas of their lives because they are narrowly focused. And for better or for worse, the people that are focused on very high, that are the most successful and single-minded, it's very common that they are not looking very good in some parts of their lives. So I, I, I'm not that, disagreeing with you. No, that's a good point. Yeah. I would say he's incredible at knowing how to get the best out of people in creating cultures and environments to do so with an unrelenting sense of mission and purpose. But I'm still not describing him as a gift. Anyone else? I just wanted to quickly mention, going off of what we were talking about with Steve Jobs, I think it's also worthy to mention that there's different ways of giving that that people do as well. I think that just the same as we have different language of love, I think we also have different languages of giving. So even if Steve Jobs wasn't materially generous or giving, I do believe that just like his quote would say, we don't tell smart, we don't hire smart people to tell them what to do. We hire smart people to tell us, to tell us what to do was a really famous quote of his. I think that just epitomizes the fact that what he did give was his employees' autonomy and ownership. And he also gave that gave them a sense of purpose and space to really actualize their creative ideas and also be in a working environment where they can really maximize their autonomy. So I think that is actually a huge gift. I think that people give gifts all the time that are not material. Giving someone, you know, time and space to share their struggle or giving someone your quality time or giving someone some skills to use all of that is our different forms of giving. So some people are very good at taking when it comes to material, but they're very giving in other ways. I think the biggest distinction is knowing where it's coming from. So generally speaking, anybody who feels abundance in one area of their life are usually going to be more susceptible to being giving in that in that area. So there are some people who have a scarcity mindset about money. They're going to be takers when it comes to money, but they could also be very big givers when it comes to giving people their compassion or giving people their time. Whereas other people may feel like their scarcity mindset lies in their time. They feel like they never have enough time. So they're cheap with their time. So the the notion of giving and, and taking really comes from their psychological disposition. Where do they feel scarcity? And where do they feel abundance? I think that, as you were saying, Johnny, having meaningful work allows us to feel, as well as meaningful relations, a lot of that allows us to shift from a scarcity mindset where we feel like if we give, we're going to run out or we're going to burn out to an abundance mindset where we can give freely without having to worry about matching or worry about running out of things because we know deep within our hearts that there's an abundance to go around and there's an abundance of wealth and abundance of happiness and success to go around. I've really enjoyed your share. Who wants to comment on that? 
Uh, sorry, I, I just, uh, I love this conversation. Oh, sorry. Uh, I was on this. Uh, I definitely get you in. Yep. We'll go Jacqueline. I just wanted to throw something out there, and this is going to go beautifully with what Rebecca just said as well. And Dr. Roshanak also mentioned this earlier. And I think we need to look at giving as, you know, we said the givers are always at the bottom of the pile. I think we have to really look at how we're measuring that because when we look at the law of giving, the bigger energetic force, right? The universal laws is when we look at that, giving and receiving are actually a flow in the universal energetic fields. And so it flows out and it flows back in. I think that where we're off is where we measure that. Can we actually say that Mother Teresa did not have a successful life? Could we actually say that? And her sole purpose on this planet was giving with no expectation of anything in return, but yet we've gained and learned some of the greatest lessons of history through her being born on this planet and doing what she did. And so when we're looking at measuring success, and, you know, Johnny, you said, who do we know that's rich, that, you know, has actually given anything away? I mean, I can start the list any time for you. Warren Buffett, $4.1 billion this year. You know, the list goes from there where we actually now see a new culture that's been created within the billionaires of our world, where there is a culture of you better be giving away because the world's watching. And they're creating that, you know, they have literally last year $169 billion given. Okay, so the top 25 Americans over the course of their lifetime at this point. This is the kind of money that people like you and I, or at least me, I'll speak for myself, can't give away. I don't have that ability, but what I do know is I have an ability to give to every single person that I touch every day in my world. I mean, Johnny and Dr. Roshanak, this is your big give today to actually stimulate this conversation with everyone, to make us look and perceive at giving and receiving and takers in a different light. And that's a gift to have these conversations in a positive, open format where we can all participate. You know, and we can look at those other areas because success can't just be measured by the amount of money or the size of your company or what your business is doing in the world. It has to be measured in different ways. And this is where I was talking about changing cultures earlier is how do we create that different culture and look at the good that is happening? $169 billion, that's a lot of money. And a lot of money that a lot of rich people have given, but yet we stand back and we criticize people for making that much. We criticize Warren Buffett for the amount of money that we make. Why aren't we celebrating what he's given? And we don't do that. We don't do that in media. We're not doing that in culture. We criticize the families like Bill and Melinda Gates for what they give because not everybody agrees with how they give. But yet they're going out and solving some of the biggest problems in the world through their influence, power, and money, and their ability to bring people together to give more. So I just want to give recognition where it's also due and how we look at the success in a giver. Back to you, Jen. Some really good points. I'm going to come back to you at some, and then obviously Dr. Roshanak. My original point to Peter was, name one successful giver, pure giver in business. That was just an example that I wanted to be corrected in terms of lots of examples. It wasn't like people who have become successful that give because yes you're right it is now very much a trend where people are tremendously successful 
are doing philanthropy with their causes and stuff like that. One part of me has an issue and the part of me has an issue. No one is completely altruistic in my view, in life. I don't think there's anyone who's completely altruistic. We get a sense of something. Even when we give, we feel good about it, which is normal. It's a normal part of human behavior. But when I, some of these billionaires at times, what they do in terms of all these philanthropy and everything else, it's great in terms of the ongoing effects that it can give to helping people in Africa or maybe helping solve cancer and all of those kind of things, which is tremendous, which 99% of people, 0.9% can't do on this planet. We need people like that to share because you could keep all the money. It's their choice to actually do philanthropy. The only thing I would say though, I don't believe it's a pure giving approach because when you're a billionaire, in my view, this is just my view, when you can have almost everything on this planet, almost everything, if you're a multi-billionaire, you can almost have everything in terms of financials, not in terms of the other stuff in terms of meaning. And you're right, success is not just about financials at all, because that's around how ultimate success equals a meaningful life, because it's meaning and fulfillment that actually leads to ultimate success, not how big is your bank account. However, I do believe with a lot of them, they're obsessed with their place in history. So a lot of people who do philanthropy over the years, you'll find a school's named after them or a road or a hospital and stuff like that, because we're all going to die. Your bank account's not going to save you. Your billions is not going to save you. One thing is certain is death and taxes. So what have you got next? It's legacy. It's a place of history. And a lot of that comes through philanthropy, which has good ongoing effects for the wider population. So what they're doing is the end result is great for many, many people, but I don't believe it to the large part is purely from a giver perspective. It's just my take on that. Who wanted to go next? Right. So can we go to him next? Yes, go ahead. Well, thank you so much. I hope you guys can hear me I'm speaking from a corner in the hospital. Amazing conversation. I'm a cardiologist and take care of a lot of patients and help a lot, which is all great. But one of the best experiences I had was signing up for a voluntary mission in China. This was just just during COVID time, but we didn't know it was happening in Wuhan. We were elsewhere in China and visiting all the orphanages and uh, taking care of young kids' hearts and scanning and so on and so forth. But as part of the organization, I was representing one of the ultrasound organizations of the of the US and it was the probably the best thing I have ever done. We also raised money for that organization and one of the events was we have a photography competition where you submit photos and it gets presented at the conference and if a photo gets selected that gets sold for raising money. And so it turned out <clears throat> that at the recent conference a couple of my photos got selected and basically it is for for sales for raising money and the topic was hearts around us so i took a bunch of random photos whenever there was a heart shape that i saw i took photos of them and I submitted one was a rock a transient rock on sandstone in antelope canyon in which lasted only for a few seconds it was just a perfect heart shape which lasted only for a few seconds and that got selected so the point I'm trying to make is, <clears throat> so I was there, so I felt great giving for the organization, which, which transformed me because that was 
the best thing I did was sign up for volunteering my time to go to China and, and, and plan to do that every year now that COVID has finally gone away. The best thing. As part of this competition, random person walked in and said, wow, I love that photo. I'm going to buy it. And I was right there. And she said, can I take a picture with you? Because I was the photographer. While she was taking the photo, someone else bought, bought my picture. So I felt really sad. Here is one person who was willing to give her money to buy my photo, to give to the organization, while someone else was in line with his credit card, giving his money for the organization. So I promised her that this was just a random person. I don't even know her. The conference was in Seattle. I took her phone number and her email address and her home address. I promised when I get back home, I'm going to get her not just one, but both the photographs that was accepted. Now, she bought the second photograph and she gave the photo that she bought to her best friend. And she texted me. I got back home and over this past weekend, I, I ordered the same two photos and mailed it to this random person. She texted me, you know, this was the most thoughtful gift I have ever received. Thank you, Raj, for that share. Dr. Rashnak. So just very briefly, and you know, it's not like there aren't people who are who are going to give in the world. I mean, we're, the whole point is that there are givers and there are takers and there are matchers and so on. There are users, there's whatever. And so that's a beautiful example of it, absolutely, of what it looks like when people are in that state. And the point is, as Jacqueline was saying, and as we know from Dr. Stephen Post's different books and articles and so on and so forth, is the first person who benefits from giving is us. When we give, we are the first people to benefit from it, personally and professionally. It's been shown over and over again, all the research supports it. Having said that, I just want to bring the, our attention a little bit further over as we were talking about, you know, Mother Teresa and who's giving and how billionaires give, but really it's for tax deduction, et cetera. I mean, I'm not going to speak for them, but there are people like George Michael, who is supposed to be the greatest philanthropist of all the celebrities. And they, they do it quietly. You know, the ones who do it not to be seen and beyond what is sort of their necessary requisite, I have to take this off my taxes and look good. <laughs> Okay, great. But again, Johnny said, they got to a place and then they did. Of course, we don't know what they were doing when they were trying to get there. And you can't blame them for trying to get somewhere. But there is an actual field business, Johnny, of giving. And that's why I said spirituality. In the world of personal development and spirituality, which is a between, you know, depending on who you're going to believe, somewhere between 40 and 44 billion dollar industry and growing every year, year after year, you have people who are making giving a living. And so the question becomes, is it somehow taking away, detracting from giving if you are making a living giving? These guys are giving all the time. And does it somehow detract from the, the joy, the love, the empathy, the art of giving in others' eyes, if there is anything to be gained in return. I mean, are we talking about giving or are we talking about sacrifice to the point of harm, whether it's financial, personal, or otherwise? That's the question. Yeah, I have something to say about that, if I may. 
Absolutely. I want to continue with notion in terms of a spiritual flow. Definitely when it comes to, like I know for myself, like I've I've dabbled in a lot of different spirituality teachings from multiple, multiple religions and multiple practices. And one of the biggest, one of the biggest constant that I'm hearing from a spirituality perspective is that giving is more about the intention than what's actually being given. So generally speaking, if let's say someone who's a billionaire gives a couple million dollars and it does, you know, and they don't really feel anything out of it, they don't have that fulfillment from it, which by the way, when you were talking about, you know, is it still giving if we're making a living out of it and are we getting anything back when we do give? I do find that 100% we get back because as they say, if you want to be happy, do something for yourself. If you want to be fulfilled, do something for someone else. And I feel like what really makes it different is the intention. If you are giving with a hidden agenda or a scheme to get back anything, then you are not you're you're not you're not actually operating from a giving center. So to me, it's actually less about what is being given and the intention. If someone has fifty dollars and they give thirty dollars to someone because they're in serious need, or you know, you have someone who's very busy, like let's say a busy mom of four, but she still has time to sit for an hour and listen to her friends, you know, crying about her breakup. That to me is when is when giving takes place. So is there a need for sacrifice? Usually there is a need for sacrifice because when we take out that sacrifice, we give and we see the impact of our giving, that's what fills our cup tenfold. So they always do say, you know, when you give, what you actually are giving multiplies and what you t- and and what you sacrificed for that giving also multiplies inside of you which is why a lot of people have started to realize that success and this is one of the things my last point quickly is that success cannot just be material i mean if we see people who are very very successful they have a lot of problems and they don't see themselves successful i mean we've seen famous people, extremely successful people like Kate Spade or or even, you know, Robin Williams or I forget the name of the gentleman. He used to do a lot of cooking shows. He was very, very well known, had an amazing life. All of them killed themselves. They all committed suicide. So it, it, it just and, and this is something I talk about a lot in my work is that if we are constantly looking for external success and chasing after external success, we are running on empty. But if we are moving towards a success that is meaningful, that fills our cup, that fulfills us, like exactly as the word says, fulfills us because we're doing it out of an intention to contribute rather you know, than a, a scheme to one day get it back, that will fill our cup and that will surely make us successful personally, professionally, material and otherwise. I have to push back on that totally. Sorry. First of all, I don't like when people start bringing Robin Williams up because they aren't aware of the disorder that he had that tends to push people to do that behavior. Second of all, we don't use the word commit anymore because it's not a crime. And third of all, it would be great if you would use a trigger warning the next time. But the idea that you give to the point of sacrifice and it's got to hurt, and you didn't say that word, 
I'm saying it because that's what sacrifice implies. I find it to be really dangerous and can cause people to feel like they have to give. It causes a lot of resentment. I see it over and over again. We got Dr. Natalie here. I'd love to hear from her about this and trauma, narcissism, and so on and so forth and manipulation. But when we give, we give from a place of love. And we ourselves are in that bucket of love. We give untaintedly when we give from a place of love and joy and not transactionally. And that includes that expectation and that narrative that it's got to hurt because then love is not in play. So when we give, we give not until it hurts, but as long as it's comfortable and then there's no resentment and there's no negativity associated with it and everybody can win. But this narrative, and especially for women, that you have to eat the burnt toast, that you have to give until you're, you know, it's a, it hurts, that it has to be a sacrifice, I know for sure is not necessarily true, if at all. And I'd love to hear if Dr. Natalie has something to add to that, please. Thanks, Dr. Oshanak. Yeah, 100% what you said. We don't know what's going on for people. I know lots of doctors or have known about many doctors who have been seen as the most generous, giving, kind. They seem fulfilled, and then we find out they're no longer here. So we can't make these assumptions that giving and giving from our heart and with what we think is pure intent is going to be sufficient for a fulfilling life. We live in society, many systems there, you know, we have issues. And many things influence our believing to give willingly and lovingly from our hearts. It's not always possible. I think in general, however people give is great. But when we talk about the billionaires and the white saviors, etc., what isn't, well, what is discussed, but what they're not thinking about is the implications of their giving by giving to who they see are more vulnerable disadvantage. It creates a dependency by that group of people. And it doesn't doesn't support building capacity of that group of people. So it comes in and tries to be the hero and protector to make themselves look good. And in that sense, that's called communal narcissism, where you're elevating yourself through giving to who is perceived more vulnerable or disadvantaged or, you know, neglected, or you're actually interfering with their natural way of being, thinking you're, you're improving their quality of life. So that's a hell of a lot of narcissism right there. And that's harmful. And there's a whole industry of volunteerism where people go off into, you know, quote unquote, sort of old countries giving and taking photos that they put on Instagram of these pe- poor people that they're helping, but they're actually not. And they're centering themselves. So I hear lots of people say, you know, I'm giving from my heart, but how do you know? Because the other thing that I don't know if has been mentioned is that people pleasing is a kind of trauma response where we think we're giving and generous and always doing that. And of course, it can lead to burnout, but it's a way of people being able to survive and succeed by overgiving or, you know, giving for their own survival. So is that a bad thing? Well, it might turn out bad for them, but it might be great for the recipient. You know, overall, I think we have to just look at a context of giving and what's required for that person to achieve the level of success or live according to their values. And it might be detrimental to them. It might be beneficial to them. It might be detrimental to the recipient. It might be beneficial. It's contextual. Yeah. Thank you so much for that, Doctor. I, that's why I wanted to go straight to her because she works on this. She studies this. And it's 
very well embodied experience and studied and a perspective that helps us to examine and understand what we're not looking at because of the prevailing narratives. Rebecca, what you said is what I grew up with. And yet it's harmful, or at least it can be. The intent is so critical. Like when Johnny was talking about altruism, that nobody's really doing it for altruistic reasons. I do believe that because there's, if you're doing an action, there is some reason you're doing it. Whether you know what the reason or you don't know the reason, there is a reason that you're doing that action. Okay. So, and you should know what that reason is. If you're giving something away, you should do it with intent. Creating like a filter is so critical to continue giving and doing it in a way which I stay protected, honestly. I protect from the bad things that, ha that happen along the giving path. Who wants, to, who wants to chime in next? Go ahead, Rebecca. Rebecca, I just want to clarify that I don't feel like sacrifice is necessary. I feel like when we give out of abundance, it doesn't feel like a sacrifice. It just feels natural. I think that that's the only time we really should give is when it feels natural. It feels like this is something I want to actually do. I, I don't believe that people should be forced into givers just because of their gender or their role in the family. I'm very against that. But I do recognize the huge power it is when we can. And again, I'm not talking about material giving. I'm talking about giving your time, your attention, your compassion, your empathy, all of these things that we really underrate when it comes to being generous. I just wanted to mention that it doesn't necessarily need to be sacrificed, but I do recognize the power because even from a mental health standpoint, one of the greatest ways, and it's been it's been proven one of the greatest ways that depressives can actually overcome their depression and, and what happened with me, where you feel like you have nothing to give because you feel like you have nothing and that you are nothing. So when you do have the opportunity, and that's why they, they encourage volunteering, is because it fills us with empowerment to know that we do have something to share and that we do have something of value and that we do have positive effects to our actions. It's empowering. So I agree as well with Mayor, the idea of filtering, because when we filter it gets us to be critical about where we're giving from. At what place are we giving from? Are we giving from a place of love? Are we giving from a place of resentment? Are we giving a place from the, the desire to receive? Whatever it may be, having that filter allows us to make sure our intention is clear. Whatever that intention needs to be, it needs to be something authentic and it needs something that is true to ourselves. Dr. Russian. I agree. Thank you for saying that, Dr. Natalie. I'm listening to all the past shares and I'm thinking about, you know, because mental health has been mentioned a few times. And I think one of the things we underrate or neglect to talk about is the giving we need to do for ourselves. And I hear, you know, evidence around if you're feeling, you know, like you have nothing to give, you're feeling worthless, that it's a good idea to go and volunteer and give what you can. But I think if we jump to that, instead of recognizing that we probably are dealing with some underlying trauma or issues, and we also desperately need to give to ourselves first and foremost. And giving and receiving or giving to others requires a balance where you're meeting your own needs, but you're not meeting your needs through another person. You're able to show up and be with someone and give them what is required, 
but you're not compromising yourself. You're not sacrificing your own well-being because when we do that, we are perceiving ourselves as a, as we're superior to that other person, that they need what I have to give more than I need it. So there is a balance between giving to another that's enough, that doesn't, again, create a codependence, but also doesn't delude ourselves into believing we're good people because somehow we are doing this thing because they really need it and they really need it for me. And that makes me superior. And that creates a power differential and a power imbalance that is a really unhealthy precedent to start any relationship with or to sustain any relationship with because it's going to lead to resentment. And this is how the dysfunction and the toxicity plays out because one day you're going to feel resentful for having, you know, for not receiving because there was never an agreement that you were going to eventually receive from this person that you've been giving more of your energy to. And so, I don't know, I'm just looking at this balance, this how do we give enough and know that it's enough and be okay with it's enough to without creating a dependency or this this idea that this ideal that we're so great because we're giving and we're living the spiritual life because generosity is important when in fact we might be neglecting our own needs and that's the underlying issue with a lack of a feeling fulfilled because we have to invest some quite a bit in ourselves especially if we've grown up always being thoughtful and considerate of others more than ourselves that's a toxic habit that is worth breaking in my books. Yes. But I just want to come back to what Dr. Nathalie said. Here in the UK, there is a fund by the government that goes across the world giving in terms of international development, right? And they do it. They is a percentage of the budget, etc. They also utilize things like culture and media to go all around the world because there's something called soft power and they do it from a place of soft power in terms of Royal Britannia, the brand out there in the world. So it's not our place of giving in terms of what they're doing. It's highly kind of strategic and very intentional in terms of we, we will do this and populate these causes and everything else because by doing so, we're enhancing the brand of Britain around the world and also we will get some reciprocity back in terms of other things that follow on from that the use of soft power charlotte i saw you actually wanting to comment and then victoria so i wanted to comment mostly on what dr nadia yeah, said yeah, yeah hi everyone thank you so much for allowing me on stage because i like her views it's very much you know centered around interpersonal relationships and all that stuff i wanted to talk specifically on the psychology of givers and takers not users at least not for now from what i've seen obviously like in my life and from what i've learned so far in the field of psychology is that takers most likely haven't experienced um, reciprocal relationships with their lives, specifically their primary caregivers, parents, or people that were supposed to teach them or show them what love was supposed to look like. So I think it's very tough for these people growing up to come to a place where they're like, oh, like this is actually how you behave, you know, in interpersonal relationships, or this is how you give love, and this is how you're supposed to be receiving it and all that stuff. I think usually a lot of it stems from being insecurely attached and just not having a very healthy relationship usually with the parents or whoever was supposed to take care of us when we were learning a lot of stuff basically at a very young young age. So I'm really I'm referring here to like early life and what goes on there and what we internalize as young kids and what we see as normal and not normal. 
and our ability to see if we can actually trust other human beings and our ability to see if we actually find other human beings reliable as well. I think given the fact that our parents are the first people we come into contact with in on earth, if we don't have a trusting, loving, you know, stable relationship with them, obviously we're not going to be grow up to become very trustful of other human beings and just see them as, you know, positive people. I think our perception of the world might not be that positive overall. For takers, a lot of them usually are extremely emotionally deprived. And I know it doesn't seem like it because we tend to see takers as very cold, distant people who are, you know, have low empathy and who are just using and abusing other people. But if you really dig, dig deep, you can like see that these are people who lack a lot of emotional like fulfillment and like nurturing and all that stuff and a lot of them also feel unequipped to fulfill themselves they just don't have i guess the emotional tools to take care of themselves and to just fulfill themselves in a way that does not hinder their relationships with other people what i have to say about givers is that a lot of them usually tend to be anxiously attached in the sense that a lot of givers at least from what i've seen have codependent tendencies and feel like they have to do a lot of stuff for people to love them so to them it's like i have to bend over backwards for other people that will make me earn their love and I've seen that for them, they don't believe that people can simply love them for being who they are. They just genuinely feel like they have to extreme stuff, basically, for the person to like not second guess ever leaving them, for the person to just stick around, for the person to be like, okay, well, now I have to give them just as much. But I think both takers and givers, it's an interesting dynamic that both of them have, because from what I've seen and from what I've learned, both are insecurely attached, both don't have the healthiest relationships or haven't experienced the healthiest loving reciprocal relationships with their own parents or people that mattered to them growing up. I think that usually they just find themselves because both in a way are trying to heal their inner child. So it's like, oh, like a giver goes to like a taker, someone who's quote unquote selfish because they believe that, you know, maybe finally that person is going to give them what maybe, I don't know, their father or their mom couldn't give them. So it's like them basically trying and seeing if they can actually get that person to like open up to them, be loving to them, be receptive, nice, and give them everything they've ever wanted. I think the root issue of like all of those stuff we're talking about, like the psychology of givers, takers, a lot of it stems from our relationships in early life with our parents and with even other significant people in our lives. But usually, I think both operate from a place of trauma. And it takes a lot of work to recognize, you know, like, why am I like a giver in life? Or why am I the person who's always bending over backwards for everyone? Why am I always resentful of other people? And I'm always doing so much and I'm not getting, you know, as much back. And for takers as well, even though I think in that area, it's a bit hard because I think takers don't tend to be that introspective because they were just brought up in an environment where I feel like they weren't pushed to be emotionally intelligent, to be empathetic, to learn how to love and receive and all that stuff. So, but for takers as well, who knows, like if you end up in therapy or you just end up questioning, why is everyone in your life calling you selfish, calling you abusive or whatever? The only thing I could think about is the attachment theory, like throughout this whole thing. Thank you, Charla. I thought that was absolutely wonderful. Dr. Roshan acted chumping at the bits to come back into that. So we'll pass the baton. I just wanted to add, Charla, first of all, beautiful share. Really appreciate it. I would add to that the, the idea of Jungian shadows, that as we are growing up, that we are encouraged to give 
you know, uh, Johnny, be a good boy. I don't mean you, Johnny, but, <laughs> you know, or like Sally, be a good girl and share with your brother and share with your sister and, you know, don't be greedy, da 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 da. And especially girls hear it and, and grow up and, and depending upon the culture, you know, certain cultures, as I've said before, some of you may have heard, they really, these cultures insist on evaluating a woman based on the level of her sacrifice, based on the level of how much she will give, to how far will she go. And it's even embedded in the language. So this idea of Jungian shadows is that you want, because as a child, your parents aren't just the source of love, they're also the source of food and, you know, shelter and your survival. And so you want to please them and you will express those parts of your personality or the repertoire of human behavior that's available to every single one of us and that they approve of and then deny the ones that you felt gave disapproval because, in fact, you're getting blamed and shamed. And that shaming is really detrimental. It, it speaks to our self-worth. It brings us down. And so we think that we can redeem that worth or prove that worth by being a giver, by doing that thing that was approved of or not doing that thing that was disapproved of, which might be being greedy, the opposite of a giver, a taker, where you feel that if you do receive that you're just a, a taker to the extreme. And that speaks very much to this idea of Jungian shadows and how we express or not express the different behaviors that are available to us. And it's funny because in the front chat, you could actually see people doing that behavior. And also with me, there's a lot of this blaming and shaming and, you know, and, and judging. And this doesn't help us. And it doesn't allow for balanced behavior. And so when you come in with this level of, of negative energetics, with this level of expectation, with this idea, whether you are conscious of it or not, that what you are doing in your relationship, whether it's personal or professional, is transactional, which means there's an expectation. And, it's, and very often, it's very hard to dig that truth out that because you, you would swear that it's not you. Like, I'm a good parent because I love my child, but oftentimes we're a good parent because we want people to say we're a good parent because we want that child to be a good child. Because if we were a good parent and that child was bad, quote unquote, right, didn't do what we expected, well, they're ungrateful, and we did everything for them, and now we're the larder, and so on and so forth. And this is how we perpetuate this imbalance of behavior, this general feeling of inadequacy, this scarcity mindset, all the terminologies that we hear regularly now, that we need to be able to find our way back to a place where we stand in our self-worth, appreciate our abilities and our talents and our skills, develop them, not have an overblown sense of self-esteem and self-valuation, which is different than self-worth from perspective of psychology, and then live and build these lives that are truly lives in which we are deeply engaged, very passionate, satisfied, happy, and we share that. Then we give freely because we are full. Our cup will run it over. We are happy to share. And it doesn't feel like a burden. And it isn't narcissistic. And we aren't doing it to prove our superiority or to cover up our deep sense of inferiority. What a wonderful topic that you have. I really appreciate this. For me, you know, it really boils down to, to nature and nurture. You know, growing up, I, I'm taught some values and so I become who I was taught to be and also at the same time it is really part of my nature 
to to be as such to to give. So I, you know, and I've known people who who grew up in in a very giving family, but because of who they are by nature, they they couldn't just impossibly it's just impossible for them to respond the way that their parents wanted them to be so i think we there's something that we cannot deny which is which is our very nature who we were born to be and unless we are blessed to have the right education and the right discipline then we can become the type of giver that perhaps we are expected to be i really resonated with i think what's his name Mahir? share about about you know how he how he is giving because he wants to please his God. I was smiling away because I am the same. Because when I was a child, I was told, I was told that I am special. I'm a child of God. That I'm born to give. That I'm born to bless. That I'm born to love others and to bring joy. That is my job. <laughs> that is my what I who I'm meant to be. That is my destiny. And I've I've been brought up to believe that. And and that philosophy has embedded it not just in, in my heart but it truly believed it I believe so so strongly in it that I refuse refuse to to change <laughs> however what, what whatever type of people I would meet however difficult in terms of uh, circumstances I refuse to change <laughs> I refuse to give up on love I refuse to give up give up on humanity on generosity because I I think you know Bad people are here to teach us. <laughs> so we just have to learn why they are doing it that way and, and because of what they've done. So giving, if you're a giver, keep giving. Never give up <laughs> because, you know, you will be blessed. Thank you so much for your insights there. We've had over 1,700 people in this room. Well, you know, another epic room, Johnny. What can I say? Who wants to share next? We've got so many good, great people here. Dimple, and then we've got Lindsay on the horse. We've got Damien and Cloud. Go ahead, Dimple. Yeah, thank you so much, Johnny. I'm sitting here thinking about the takers, right? I've come across a lot of takers in my lifetime. And, you know, some of them have been in corporate. But what I'm thinking about is, do takers continue to take because no one calls them out on what they're doing. Think that when people are all take, 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 a lot of times no one's calling out their bad behavior. And because no one's calling it out, they continue to do that behavior because they don't, they're not getting reprimanded. They're not getting recognized that maybe this is not the right way to handle things, to just take, take, take and not give. When people get called out on certain things, because I remember I had to call someone out and they were pretty much oblivious to it. And I think that because more people would rather not say anything than say anything, I think that perpetuates people's bad behavior, right? Because other people are like, well, I've done this before. I got away with it. I've bullied people in corporate America to get ahead, so I'm going to continue doing it because I know that I'm going to get away with it. And it's that mentality of like, I know I'm going to get away with it. I remember I got an alert about a TikTok and Yahoo News posted this. I think it was either in Canada or Australia. I can't remember, but it was one of those two places that there was an employee that was getting bullied and micro micromanaged 
And that employee got a $2.8 million settlement, right? But the laws are different in every country and every state. But the thing is, when people are allowed to misbehave and they're allowed to just take, 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 and they're not called out or made to realize that behavior is not really acceptable, they're going to continue doing it and doing it. And they're going to see how much they can get away with. So why is it that people don't call out bad behavior? I want to know that answer to that. It's a really good question. Anyone want to answer that? Why don't people call out bad behavior? I think one of the things is not just that it's not called out, Dimple, which is a great point. It's, it's actually encouraged because when companies are looking at the bottom line and they want everybody to fall in line, then, hey, whoever brings in what I wanted, I don't care how they did it. And so this is something that we touched upon a little bit earlier, is that people can talk till they're blue in the face about what they're doing for the organization. But what you see are the true dynamics that support certain kinds of behavior. And I think part of it is that people have fallen into the habit of this behavior. A huge part of it is we work through reward. In the beginning, when you want people's behaviors to change, negative reward is what works best. And I don't see that happening. I don't see too many places, you know, really giving a negative feedback to people being users or being really just somewhat manipulative. First of all, they've got to discover it. Then they've got to take away from their time and the work they're, they're doing. And then it's a like he said, she said, and then nobody's focusing on the work that needs to be done. And so, you know, just let's keep moving forward. And a lot of it gets swept under the carpet, under the rug. Jacqueline's next. Maybe Jacqueline, you can speak to us a little bit. You know, Gary V has a chief heart officer, not just a, a lot of people have chief happiness officers now, and it seems to be more rhetorical than anything, but a chief heart officer who then goes around and checks in with everyone and makes sure that people are heard and that what's going on is received and addressed. That is how you can really make a difference. Jacqueline, can you speak to that a little bit, please? Yeah, absolutely. She's a remarkable woman and she's Gary B's right hand. So he doesn't have a vice president. He has a chief heart officer for the sole reason that the culture, and I'm going to go back to that dimple as well. We talked about this earlier, is it's these cultures that have been created. And Dr. Roshanet can speak on this better than I can. But what we know is that through the cultures that have been created over time, the competitive nature that we have pitted each other against, especially in workplaces, is this has created patterns for us. It's created repetitive behavior. It's actually completely shift that culture, takes it, it has to come from a top-down position where they have set the stage, for example, at Vignet Media, that they have set the stage by putting their their person in command so the person right next to gary and listen if you've seen gary v on any social channels you know the message he gives across it is about kindness and compassion and it's about coming from a place of heart as much as he talks about business he reads with that from himself not only personally but he puts it out to the world and then he has his right hand in the workplace as well that continually reinforces that behavior as good as a behavior that they're going to reward, as a behavior that they want to instill in their employees. But that takes time and it create it takes an entire cultural shift that has to come from the top down. Because, you know, we talked a little bit about this earlier as well. 
is that the giver always seems to be on the bottom of the pile. And it's not that they're, you know, to me, it's not that a giver is on the bottom of the pile, but their voice is more effective when it's congruent to the voice of the leaders. And that's where we have to find congruency in our community. And that can be at work, but it's also our community. You know, Clubhouse is a great example of that. You know, we choose, and I know Johnny and Roshanak and Saliv, why Saliv has this beautiful space. Dimple, all the people here on the stage, they show up to rooms that are creating more of that positive, loving, giving circle that goes out into the community. And then we get to make those choices where we come, where we share, where we comment, where we participate, and how we show up. And so are we showing up consistently? Are we showing up regularly to be that force that's going to change cultures? I think that's possible, but it's far more possible when it's in large groups. We see that when we're looking at global change. We know that even in a culture in the workplace, it comes from a community of people rather than just one person saying, hey, everybody, let's go do a beach cleanup together at work or whatever it may be, but when there's 100 people behind it or 200 people behind it, or there's a march or, you know, it keeps going on and that momentum grows and changes. But when we focus on somebody like a chief heart officer, that's the head of the organization saying, we're going to lead this organization from a place of heart. And that changes everything. Thank you, Jacqueline. Dr. Roshan, I love what Jacqueline said, and I think it's really important because it really gets back to, you know, at the end of the day, it's a win-win or a lose-lose. And when you unoptimize for your business, you optimize the integrity, as we were saying before, of this is what I believe in. These are the people I'm hiring. I believe Maher had brought that up. This is, or maybe it was Peter. This is what we're going to do. This is what we stand for. And we're actually going to make sure that our actions back up what our mission is. And so what Jacqueline just explained to us is someone like Gary Vee, who's very successful putting his money where his mouth is. Can I just add quickly one thing to this? I wanted to share with everybody just because of my charitable organization. We teach this in schools. So we've had over 500 schools globally now that participate in our programs where we're changing cultures in schools and how children learn by implementing a culture of giving. And teaching children, literally one day at a time, that we are bringing out the best of them. We are teaching and the teachers are implementing along with their work, they call it social-emotional learning, but we teach that culture of giving to children because really it's not that they don't know, and I'll let you know that research has been done right to the age of toddlers, children 18 months old. And it's one of the researchers we work with that innately will give, not encouraged by a parent, not told to by a parent, but two 18-month-old children sitting down together, they will innately and immediately share without any prompt from their parents at all. And they've been able to show this again and again that in children, it is innately who they are. And it's just fostering that in children. And what we know is that when we teach this, when we empower the children to choose, and this is a big part, is that when we talk about giving, it's not just telling somebody they have to give or implementing implementing it. It's empowering people to make that choice on how they want to give, 
how they want to show up for others, how they want to incorporate it into their lives. But it's more of a remembering innately who we are as a species because they've now been able to show this in childhood that it's already there. And that's the culture that we can change at a global perspective. When we foster this in our children, we're now creating new leaders in our world that will, in 20 years, 25 years, 30 years, it's innately who they are. They're going to show up and be that in ways that are unconscious to them. They're going to automatically hold a, open a door for somebody. They're going to automatically share their fishy crackers. They're going to automatically be and give because it's who they are, not because they've been told to be it. And that's the cultural shift that we see when leaders bring this into the workforce. When they show up and we witness people like Gary Vee again and again and again, and his chief happiness officer, who her name is Claude Silver, by the way, when they show up and repeatedly show up again and again and again, everybody then innately shows up as that as well, because they're leading by their own behavior. We do that as parents. Teachers do it in the classroom. Now we can see that shift in leadership at a, at a high-end business scale as well. And that is then the collective shifting to create that culture in the world. Thanks for the extra time, John. Thank you, Jacqueline. I just wanted to address what Dimple said about calling out people's behavior, bad behavior, why we don't call it out. It's twofold. One is accountability. Accountability is the route to all things changing. I do a hell of a lot on that. I'm actually in the UK's number one accountability coach. And that's firstly, we have to hold ourselves accountable and then hold others accountable. The pr problem is a lot of people don't do it in companies because if the person's perceived to have sen a sense of more power in hierarchy, there's something called office politics and people feel like, well, is it in my interest to call them out? If I do call them out, maybe I'm going to create an environment where the person's going to come down on me, he's going to be out to get me, right? And this happens. This happens either overtly or there's something called the backstabber. And the backstabber in the world of work is someone who, a bit like Julius Caesar, knifes you at the back in terms of saying things about you behind your back, rumor, all that kind of stuff, because you had the audacity to call out their bad behavior. But if not enough people do it, what happens is the silent majority, the silent majority stays silent. And there's always the noisy minority that raises their voices, and then things get kind of conflated. So we have to be mindful but we also have to call it out for what it is it's just some people are very hesitant if for example they're the only breadwinner they have a mortgage to pay they have rent to pay the repercussions of them falling out with someone who's doing the bad behavior that's their boss causes them to sometimes bite their lip but then that re replicate that behavior then replicates and it creates this environment and culture of fear and allows bad practices to happen because no one says boo. It happens at times with people that have just bad character. And you can have bad character if you're rich, if you're poor. Character is character. And I always say, people say, oh, Judge people when, uh, uh, in terms of people that are there for you in, in times that are tough. No, judge people when they have a little bit of power. Because when they have a little bit of power, that's when the true person comes out. Okay, Mahe? Yeah.
Thank you, Johnny, for that. And by the way, I just want to say congratulations on the book, you know, uh, that's you, coming out. I know those take a while to put together. And uh, how, many, how many have you put out? Is this yeah, your first one? First one, and you're bloody killing me. <laughs> oh, and dude, yeah, big congrats there. I mean, if everybody could just kind of cheer on Johnny here, support him, I'm going to buy that book from you, brother. I think I know that that's it's a big milestone. So I'm very, very uh, proud of you there. What I wanted to kind of mention, I built, you know, several companies and one of them, I'll give you, I'm going to give you guys, I know we got a lot of business leaders in here too. Whether you're a, a business leader, manager, even if you're just on a team, probably one of the things I'm most proud of developing. I call it the token of appreciation. Okay. Go to your bank. And this is for, I, I, in the United, I'm talking uh, predominantly in the United States. So I don't know if, how this would work in other countries. But in the U.S., we have these little gold gold dollars, right? We got silver dollars. You're not going to find much of those. You might find them in this process. I've, we found a few. But you got these gold dollar coins. You go to the bank and ask for them. And you might have to hit up a few banks. First of all, they're worth more than a buck. They're usually worth a couple of two, three dollars anyway. But uh, you get these gold coins, and so let's say you have a, a group of 10 in a company and there's like two, there's five in one department, five in another department. So you got a manager and people, manager and people, you just hand it off to everybody. And then the role is very simple. During the week, you got to catch somebody doing something good and give it to them. But you got to be very specific in what you give it to them for. You tell them, I'm giving you this coin for this specific action that you did. I appreciate you for doing this specific here, you know? Thank you very much. And, and and why you appreciate it. Man, this thing gives out so much information when you do this. First of all, it creates a cross-company validation process. It's not just top-down, like employee of the month, employee of the week, whatever those things, the little events and the big old... I mean, so it's, I find it kind of funny. This thing is more valuable than all the whole event and spending tons of money and people coming into the shows and whatever for employee appreciation event once, once a year or something. You need to do this stuff consistently. So when, when you do this once a week, it costs a buck an employee. I'm pretty sure everybody who has a company or is a manager of a department can afford a buck an employee a week to boost morale significantly. You learn so many different things when you do this very simple thing. Number one, if you're observing, especially as a manager individual, that w what people are saying, whenever you'll observe that whoever gave the coin and said, I appreciate you for X, you'll start to pick up what people actually appreciate from each other. This person likes that. That person likes this. You'll find out why they're what all the others appreciate about them. It, it creates this incredible, cool, interesting dynamic. And the nice thing is there's a coin attached to it. For, they would put like fish bowls above their desks and start putting the coins up there and, and like kind of have competitions of who's, pick, who's picking up the most coins. You can direct it and nudge it in a positive direction and let it sprout into a positive direction. And that's very, very important to do. If you want to design a culture, you know, on the, the, actually, if you're running some stuff, Vern Harnish, Rockefeller Habits, check that book out. Okay. So we've got Niddy, the wonderful Niddy. Nice to see you. They're waiting for your bombs to drop. <laughs> well, no pressure, right? I've loved the conversation so far. And, you know, something got sparked in me when you all were talking about why people don't call out individuals that are toxic. I think sometimes what happens with leaders is if somebody is high achieving enough or productive enough, they're willing to overlook these toxic traits. And I've seen this firsthand in multiple workplaces that I've worked in, where people would be high producers, they were highly organized, can't deny it, they got things done. But the competitiveness and the toxicity just was something that 
got tolerated because they weren't willing to sacrifice letting go of the person that was pulling the rest of the team down because they saw whatever little value they were adding as more important. They weren't looking at the culture. And so I think it's really important for leaders that are out there listening to know that the people are watching. Like your best employees are watching you as they navigate situations like bullying. And the minute that you tolerate something that is toxic or you let something slide that shouldn't be let slide, it's an immediate deterioration of psychological safety and trust in your team. And the damage that gets done in that moment can be really difficult to repair. It's doable, but it's so much easier for you to hold people accountable and to rid the team, even if somebody is productive, to get rid of that energy because you don't want it to spread like contagion amongst the rest of your team members. And the unfortunate reality of what happens if you do allow that to continue is that people start leaving. Like, that's what I did. Eventually, I left every single one of those jobs. I was like one of the people that did the most planning and was a part of the cohesion of the team. And I left because I'm like, you know what? I don't feel safe here anymore. I don't feel like anybody has my back. I don't feel like I can trust the people on this team. And there's no amount of money and there's no amount of career mobility that's going to put me in a position where I'm feeling anxious and insecure and feeling not taken care of in my workplace. I just really implore leaders to think about that before you excuse toxic behavior because you keep the people that are mediocre, maybe slightly above mediocre, and you end up losing the exceptional people. I love that. I'm so glad you brought that up. So I come from an academic background, and I can't tell you how many people have to suffer under the bad behavior of someone who's bringing in the big grants. Nobody is willing to let this person go. And you just destroy, you decimate your department because of the people who stay are not connected, they're freaked out, they're always on their guard. And then bad behavior, speaking of being users and manipulators, starts to really become like a survival response. And so I really appreciate you saying that because even from the ivory tower of academia all the way down to, you know, you could say like the mom and pop shop or whatever, if you are not taking care of the team of people who are working for you, even if that team is like a couple of people then it's really going to come back and bite you in the butt one way or the other. I've been listening in. I've been finding it super interesting conversation. And I got to talk to Dr. Roshana Goften about a lot of things in terms of human behavior, work cultures, et cetera. I think what kind of overwhelmingly, I guess, affects me is sometimes lack of control and understanding what people's motives might be or, or why they're saying the things they say. And I think once you get down to that, it explains a lot of behavior. So when you have Givers, takers, and users, I guess these are motives that I think as been explained in this room, we need an element. If you're just giving all the time, you're not going to have any fuel or anything for yourself to build and give more. So, so there is a need to take at times as well. I guess being a user can be manipulative in ways, but it's interesting how um, increasingly we see a, a lot of users in the world as well. I guess some people, some psychologists are saying people or the new generations become more selfish in ways, ways that have been good, ways that have been, I think, healthy as well, especially when it comes to things like not just taking the status quo or, or what they've been taught, but actually questioning why things are done in certain processes, suspect that element. But I think I like uh, the overall kind of message of this room, which is 
you need to give, you need to also take at times as well. But if you do it in the right ways, the right places, then that's fair and you'll be able to give a lot more, which helps society become better. Can we hear maybe Nitty respond? Yeah. Because she brought up that point. Thank you. I absolutely love what you're saying. I think that ultimately we have to be able to view our connections relationally, right? And there's going to be times in our lives where we're going to be givers and we're going to be takers, but ultimately you want to be able to give so much more than you take in the world. And that can't happen if you're self-centered, if you're only thinking about what your gains are. And so Johnny, I'm so excited to read your book. I'm purchasing a copy right now. That's why I was like caught up, <laughs> caught up guard for a second. I had a little question for you guys, if it's okay. Is that okay? Sure. So I was just, just, I was just thinking about this notion of the taker. And it's very interesting because I, I know that we were talking about cultures. And I find it very funny how, you know, there's a lot of cultures that value this notion of making children to givers. I just want to share one thing that was very different for me growing up, which is that I was always labeled as a giver from my family. And it's interesting because that was actually not a compliment. It was interesting because I was actually encouraged to be less of a giver. And the reason for that was because my father, may he rest in peace, was a very, very giving man, a very, very generous man with his time, with his energy, with his money, with his attention, everything. And my mother always criticized him because she thought that people would just wipe the floor with him and he was too trusting. And she said that just made him really weak. I'm a lot like him. And for a while, I had some battles with that. And then I realized, very similar to what Charlotte said earlier in the conversation, was that when I was giving at that time, when I was younger versus the way I give now as an empowered businesswoman and mental wellness coach, I find the difference was that before I felt like my value was whatever value I gave to others. So I didn't feel valuable unless I was giving value. And that was a, a prerequisite for me. And then I realized later like as I was saying, my mother actually encouraged me to be more of a taker because she believed that this is a world that is a doggy dog world, which is coming from her experience, you know, struggling to struggling to make ends meet in Canada and, you know, being in a foreign country. And she believed that, you know, if I continue to be this kind of giver, I'm just going to be continuously stepped on and put and be considered as a pushover. No one's going to respect me. So what was interesting is that with with the encouragement to be a taker, I did notice that I was giving not to receive, but receive back what I've given, but to be loved. And that was the thing is that I was giving everything I could just so people could love me. And that was a prerequisite that I thought was going to be the love for me. And so now I realize that the big shift I had to do was to give, not to be loved and, and, and being able to give because I was able to cultivate self-love in myself first. And that was the main thing is that I wasn't giving from empty. I'm finally giving from a place of abundance. But one question I wanted to pose to all of you, the notion of taker. So is a taker a taker 
if they take advantage of opportunities and are not necessarily taking from others. Because I see that sometimes opportunists, right, are often seen as takers because they go after what they want and they make no apologies about it. Do you guys think that that type of person is a taker as well? Or are they just an ambitious opportunist trying to get the most out of what they can? I'll, I'll take a stab at that. I think that there's a huge difference. I mean, for me, it's like opportunist equals entrepreneur. Like that's what, that's what we do. We're going to go find an opportunity and then we're going to go analyze it and then we're going to go kill it. <laughs> we're going to go do our best job of like doing, growing that thing. That's just what it's about. It's not a bad thing. Right. And uh, as long as you, I mean, if you're, if you're doing opportunity and taking the opportunity, taking advantage of the opportunity when it's presented itself, as long as it's not hurting folks. And as a matter of fact, most of the times these opportunities are actually creating new products and services, which help people, then that's a positive thing to do. Cause it's very important to kind of separate the, the different, exactly. you know, and, the and, and culturally, yeah. And culturally the, there's a difference too, right? Because like I say, if, if another culture were to see someone who is that and, you know, who is that person that goes after the gold and, and, and doesn't and doesn't ask permission for it? I know that, you know, other cultures would look at this person and say, wow, like this person's kind of a an opportunist, I guess you could say. So it's interesting how there can be a clash of cultures where there might be a culture that says this person's selfish. You know, they're not sharing, you know, opportunities. They're just after what what they're after. So I just wanted to kind of bring those two perspectives because there are those perspectives. You know, let me add one last thing about altruism. Look, I hate altruism. I'm going to be honest with you guys. Okay. I'm very giving, but I hate altruism. Let me tell you why. It's unclear. It's unclear. I it's when you're doing a transaction with somebody, right. And you're putting stuff together and there's like money involved. It's clear this service or this product is going to be exchanged for this function. But when it, when it, it, like in the open source deal that I just came out of, it was so hard because every, it's a, this altruism, what's their real intent? You know, everybody's got a real intent, but then they hide it. They don't, they don't tell you what their real intents are in this altruistic space, if you will. So it's a hard area to navigate as an entrepreneur for me, you know, I had successes and failures through the process, but I think it's very important to make sure others know what your intent is and what you, why you're doing whatever it is you're doing. And don't have ulterior motives. Just state what it is. Thank you, please. Yeah, great, great, great points. I think it's context, personally. Context of him. So you might only get one big opportunity in life and you have to grab opportunities because opportunities, big opportunities can be rare. Excuses, they can run 24-7, but it depends on the context. Say someone gives you an opportunity in the world of work. For example, we've got the leadership debate going on here in the UK with the conservative leadership side of things. Boris Johnson recently had to step down as PM. Some people are saying Sunak, which is one of the contenders who was the ex-chancellor, he got his big break with Boris Johnson promoting him as chancellor after just spending a few years within the government. And then some people say, and this is hurting his campaigns, this is why he's likely to lose, that he was the one who stuck the knife in Boris Johnson's back because he was opportunistic 
in seeing a better opportunity to go from chancellor to prime minister. So I would say everything in life, there's no black and white, it's lots of gray, and it depends on context. But at times, you have to go for opportunities and never, ever be frightened to do that because what will happen is you'll have a life of regrets and if onlys and if, if never comes. Okay, Peter, go ahead. Okay, what a great conversation, Johnny. Thanks for creating such a great room. I guess I wanted to bring a, bring a certain insight that I had about this binary system that exists that seems to be congruent with all natural processes. There seems to be a necessity for duality to exist in all. And this is how we recognize reality. This is how we know we're here. This is how I know that I am me because of the contrast of you. I recognize up because I know down, I recognize in because I can see outwards. And so I'm listening to the conversation about the giver and the taker, and they seem to fit in that same system of nature that is binary and completely necessary for us to understand reality, for us to have an experience. So for example, if someone's listening right now and you consider yourself a giver, well, the only way you can recognize yourself as such is because there are takers in the world or else you wouldn't know what a giver was. And I think that even moving beyond this topic, just like you were mentioning before, Johnny, about the different issues that are happening because of how we look at things in our perspective and the, the election right now in the UK and, and how that might play out because of people's perspectives is because a lot of times we, we tend to label one of these things as good or bad. And we say, well, the white is better than the black. The giver is better than the taker, but they must exist with each other. They're, they're completely and utterly tied together. And there's a conspiracy between both. And so I guess the perspective that I'd like to bring is that maybe delay the, the instinct to judge one or the other, to say one is good or bad, because they must exist with each other. You will always have givers and you will always have takers. And to kind of sit in the middle a bit and just observe that they're both necessary for us to understand and experience reality. And by doing so, I think that we can bring a lot more empathy for people when we, when we see them as maybe a giver or a taker and remove the cultural nuances that may be tied to that and see the world in a, you know, in a more natural way. Really good to hear from you. I think that's a lovely way to end the room.